Welcome to another Cognitive Dissident Quickie. Conservationists have seen it over and over. People only care about saving species they can relate to. The general public cares little for snails or nasty-looking insects or snakes, but cuddly pandas evoke a full-throated outcry. We must be able to anthropomorphize an animal in some way, even if they look completely different from us. Take, for example, humpback whales, which were not really on people's radar for protection until their songs were recorded and popularized. So in the end, do what are essentially aesthetics, physical appearance, sonic and behavioral features that in some way engender a feeling of kinship and familiarity, determine our decisions on matters of life and death and on highly contentious matters of public policy. Do aesthetics and our emotional responses to them generate and alter cultural mores? Lenny Bruce did a fantastic examination of this question in a bit wherein he asked a white racist, a Ku Klux Klansman in fact, what he'd do if faced with the choice of spending 15 years with a quote, black black woman, quote, or a quote, white white woman, quote. He goes into detail about hugging and kissing and sleeping together on long hot nights with a black black woman or a white white woman. And the women are in the same age bracket, he says, so the comparison is fair. The punchline is that the white woman is the rotund and none too attractive Kate Smith, and the black woman is the gorgeous Lena Horne. As the crowd laughs uproariously, Lenny crows, So, you are not concerned with black and white anymore, are you? I highly recommend this wonderfully subversive revealing bit. And you can find it searching on YouTube for, quote, Lenny Bruce, black, black woman, end quote. To shed light on the effect of aesthetics on a pressing issue of the day, I propose a thought experiment, one I wish could be done in real life and documented candid camera style. Who knows? Maybe someone will. Take a bunch of cisgender women who fervently support complete transgender bathroom and locker room rights, full stop. These people would most likely be younger, below 50, because a lot of people in their 50s and above are lukewarm or at least more nuanced in their views on this issue. For example, they may want post-op trans women to be able to share their bathrooms, locker rooms, nude saunas, etc., but want pre-op trans women excluded. Some, of course, would want no sharing at all. No, I want the dyed-in-the-wool, no-compromise, full trans rights. Anyone can use these facilities based on their own personal concept of their own gender crowd. Then I want to film them, one by one, totally alone in a locker room. I want to see their reactions to the following people coming in and standing behind them or next to them, getting naked with them as they both change out of their street clothes and into their sauna towels or bathing suits. Perhaps we could up the ante and even film another segment wherein these cisgender women are followed into the sauna or steam room by these other people. I want to stress here that there would be no purient interest in this. I would want all the nudity blurred out. I'm interested in the facial expressions and the general body language of these women as the aesthetics of the people who join them change. Our list of participants to undress in close proximity to our super pro-trans rights women and or share a sauna with them. A, a small, slight, fine-boned, feminine-looking post-op trans woman. That is someone complete with a surgically created vagina, and perhaps they wear makeup, they're pretty, they look quite feminine. B, a similarly feminine-looking pre-op trans woman. That is someone who still has a penis, but may have breasts due to hormone therapy. 
C. A large, more muscular, more masculine-looking post-op trans woman, someone who is linebacker-sized and, again, no longer has a penis, and whose muscles may be more toned down than a man's, but are still on the large size for a woman's, and who would have breasts due to the effects of hormone therapy. D. Someone very similar to our last example, but pre-op, so their penis is still intact, though they might have breasts. E. Lastly, a large, muscular individual who considers themselves trans, but who has had no surgery and no hormone therapy whatsoever. A hairy, muscular linebacker type, but one who self-identifies as trans. I bet you dollars to donuts that we would observe a large percentage of these no-compromise cisgender zealots becoming increasingly uncomfortable as the participants became ever larger and ever more masculine-looking, as they changed out of their clothes in close proximity and perhaps sharing a nude sauna with them. The addition of penises would, I am sure, ratchet things up another notch. To paraphrase Lenny, so you're not so concerned with trans rights now, are you? You're concerned at the end of the day with how feminine that trans person appears to be. Your comfort or lack thereof has nothing to do with their trans status, their self-identification, but rather with aesthetics as to what constitutes feminine and masculine. Of course, these cues we call aesthetics are really a mix of literally millions of years of evolutionary biological signaling, coupled with a thin icing of cultural distortion and elaboration. Perhaps we could add to the aesthetic question the dreaded power dynamic. The six foot six muscular pre-op transgender person, who basically appears to be a man in drag, could easily overpower most women, while the small, boned, delicately built, possibly well-made-up trans person, whether pre- or post-op, does not represent a potential to overpower. If I'm right, the discomfort level would jump because of these two factors, decreasing perceived femininity and increasing size and strength. It would be fascinating to see if all the simplistic proclamations evaporated away like the morning mist when confronted with concrete realities, because the reality is complicated. The reality is that compromise is called for. The reality is that when push comes to shove, the sensitivities of people are complex and are based far more on emotional responses than intellectual ideas, much as we'd all like to pretend otherwise. This experiment uses a safe group, super pro-trans rights cis women, but it begs a much larger, more important question, a question I'd never settle with an experiment because it would be cruel and unethical, but it's really at the root of this episode. Do we have empathy for women who've been sexually assaulted and or physically assaulted by men? Do their feelings matter? Does their right to what's often referred to as a safe space matter? And if not, why not? I could extend that to the mothers of female children and teenagers. Do their feelings matter? Does their desire to shield their offspring from seeing naked bodies, sometimes large, strong, highly masculine-looking bodies, some with penises intact, matter as well? Even if you may not have a nudity taboo, do you devalue someone else's? Do you feel it's valid to override people's feelings to render them unsafe in their own skins in order to give a more disadvantaged group more rights? I think that in the best of all possible worlds, all public bathrooms would hold a single person in complete privacy, but there's not enough space in all public buildings to accomplish that. Moreover, maybe something good would be lost too. 
do women sometimes talk to each other, comfort each other, help and amuse each other, even start friendships in the ladies' room at clubs and such? I don't know. I see it in the movies all the time, but being a guy, I've never spent time in the ladies' room. The men's room, not so much. I don't think I've ever had a fascinating conversation there or struck up a friendship there. Regardless, even if some female camaraderie would be lost, it's the best solution. But it's not tenable, not everywhere, not even if bathrooms were shrunk down to airplane size, which would also really discriminate against tall and fat people. So how do we compromise? What's the best policy? I don't know. I only know it's not a simple matter and that aesthetics, patterns that connote masculine and feminine to the conscious and especially subconscious mind, are very powerful very real, and really matter. Thanks for listening. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media. The music for today's episode came from my 2009 release of improvised solo piano music called The Annunciation, which is available for purchase in physical CD form, or as an mp3 file or streamed from many sources including spotify amazon cd baby etc please check out the daily screamer for more content and consider supporting this podcast via our patreon fund which you can find at thedailyscreamer.com thank you